This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Tanya Lewis, Scientific American's assistant news editor. And I'm Andrea Garleski, the collections editor at Scientific American. And on this episode of Science Talk, we talk about some of the stories we've loved from this month's issue in the section called Advances. Tanya, just for our new listeners, can you explain what the advances are? Sure. So advances is basically the front of the book news section where we review the latest uh, discoveries and uh, new technologies. And today we're going to be talking about a couple stories in the December issue. One is called Rolling Octopuses by Rachel Neuer. And the other one's called Catching Whiskey Fakers by Lucas Lowerson. The opener story is about how um, scientists are kind of determining new ways to detect uh, whiskey fraud, which is apparently a big problem um, that a lot of spirit makers have to deal with, where basically... counterfeit whiskey? Exactly. This is a disaster. Yeah, I know. Especially for the uh, whiskey makers, because they're trying to sell these high-end products it sounds like it's a it's for the for the drinkers it's a disaster I mean, yeah that too i don't need no counterfeit whiskey thank you no exactly <laughs> um i mean you've heard of probably like fake vanilla or other types of products but mm. and fake honey is another big one. Oh, really um, yeah hmm. yeah so there's like all different kinds of products that are faked how so how do they fake whiskey so there's a couple different ways you can kind of fake whiskey so it could either be like a, a product that's like adulterate like sort of like a moonshine liquor that's not really real whiskey you know it's not properly distilled and everything Mm. it's just kind of moonshine that's sold as whiskey and that can be really dangerous because people can drink it and go blind for example oh my god but then there's also just like regular sort of you know cheap whiskeys that they sell as high-end whiskeys they just put a high-end label on it basically but yeah so there's like all these different um scientists trying to figure out ways to detect fake whiskey by using like spectroscopy, for example, which is where they like shine a light through the um, liquor and they try to measure what compounds are in it based on like the wavelength of the light. So So they intend to test at random in the liquor store or what is the on the street relevance of this research? So sometimes they'd be testing it when it's already on the shelf. Like there might be like what they they have, for example, they have whiskey um, auctioneers like Isabel Graham Yule, who... She, like, basically goes and looks at the whiskey collections, and she can tell just based on the color, like, whether it's, um, you know, too light or too dark. And Right. So she's a real connoisseur. Yeah, exactly. Right. But then, you know, she can go beyond that using a tool, or a scientist could use a tool to actually, you know, detect whether it's a fake product or a real one. Hmm. Or, like, a low-brow uh, low whiskey. Low, uh, <laughs> plenty of that out there. Yeah. <laughs> And another thing that they're doing um, is using, like, big databases to track kind of when there's been a report that there's fake liquor on the market. And they can just kind of – it's like a food recall, but for – I see. So there are scientists – just to get this straight – there are scientists who are just making spot visits to liquor stores and – 
testing whiskey and then reporting it to like the agencies to ensure. So I'm not sure if it's always the scientists that are detecting it, but that scientists are the ones like when there's a type of whiskey that might have been flagged as suspicious, then they would bring it to the scientists <laughs> who would then test it and determine whether or not it's actually. I fake. see. It's estimated that about 70 billion US dollars a year is lost to the industry, the food industry to counterfeiting and fraud. And one of the areas of that is the uh, counterfeiting of spirits. That was Dr. David Ellis, a chemist at Manchester Institute of Biotechnology at the University of Manchester in the UK. And the thing with spirits, it's one of the one of the only areas of food fraud, or one of the fewer areas of food fraud anyway, where it's definitely a food safety issue, because they're making up uh, dodgy uh, spirits, either like vodkas or rums or or whiskey, as we were mentioning earlier, and they're using industrial alcohols to make these things, such as methanol and ketones and isopropyl and that kind of thing. So people are dying, you know. I think that what is so fascinating about it is that it's such a complex substance with all these really sophisticated flavors and the idea that it could be adulterated in some way I think is something that not everyone thinks about when you you know you just think oh I'll order a drink and I'm getting what I'm advertised. Whiskey is one of the most chemically uh, complex drinks in the world it's uh, marvelous actually and that's what makes it uh, so attractive as well because there's so much diversity of, uh, of flavor and aroma there you know. Uh, and that's uh, typically due to the maturation processes and things like this, how long it's kept in wood and what it's the different parts of the, uh, Scotland it's made from. I mean, my favourite was the Speyside whiskies, which are the mildest, but you get some that have got a real peaty, strong peaty flavours and salty. But a lot of that's imparted by uh, the maturation, uh, where they get the barrels from and what the barrels have previously been used to store, such as port and sherry and and things like this, you know. But it's extremely complex and diverse drink, yes. And what exactly, I mean, when you talk about counterfeit whiskey, is it still a, a, like a type of alcohol that's just, you know, colored in such a way to look like whiskey, but it's not distilled in the same process? It's absolutely that. Uh, it's the uh, Counterfeiters can use one of many, many industrial type al alcohols, so-called denatured alcohols, where uh, something's been added to the alcohol to make it unfit for human consumption. Um, as well as the, the most famous one, the most famous industrial alcohol, infamous, I should say, is methanol, of course, which can cause blindness and death. So they'll use any old industrial alcohol they can get hold of. Uh, and add, like, uh, like you've just said, they'll add uh, colorings to it, uh, flavorings to it, such as vanilla, sucrose, limonene, transanethyl, this kind of thing. Anything to make it look like whiskey. Or they can put some old, uh, some uh, blended whiskey uh, into recycled bottles. That's another way of doing this. Um, uh, and that's a big industry in the counterfeiting world in itself is... Um, uh, uh, old bo uh, bottles and labels etc and packaging which they will recycle the bonafide they look very bonafide indeed some of them whereas some of them in asia don't look they're, they're absolutely silly they, they have really crazy names that we would understand as looking absolutely silly because english is our first language but uh, there's massive whiskey drinking in the in east east asia southeast asia uh, and where English isn't their first language and they wouldn't spot it as easily. Dive into that, um, the method a little bit more. If you could describe your spectrometer and, you know, what exactly it's detecting um, for our listeners, I think it'd be really fascinating. 
Yeah, this is it's a it's a technique called Raman spectroscopy. It's, it's it's named after the Indian scientist who discovered the technique in 1928, Chandrasekhar Raman, and he got the Nobel Prize. He was the first uh, non-white person to win the Nobel Prize in science, actually, in 1930. And it's to do with the interaction of light with matter. So. When we point a laser beam of a specific uh, wavelength at something, uh, the vast majority, are, there's an interaction, there's molecular interactions, and the vast majority of light that comes back from that, that is scattered back from uh, us pointing this laser beam at uh, a sample, that will be at the same wavelength as the laser that we use to interrogate the sample. And that's called Rayleigh scattering. It's like what we see in the sky um, at dusk and dawn. It's exactly the same wavelength. But absolutely minute part, about one photon in 10 million, is so-called inelastically scattered or Raman scattered. And that comes back at a different frequency and wavelength as the incident light or the laser beam that we point at a sample. And it's that tiny, tiny fragment of the uh, light that comes back that's carrying a lot of information about uh, the structure of the sample that we're, that, that we're interrogating. And that, in a nutshell, is Raman spectroscopy, or the Raman effect. And what we've been using are Raman spectrometers, and it's quite clever, actually, because uh, one of the papers that we've just published in the uh, Royal Society of Chemistry's Analyst uses conventional Raman, spectro uh, conventional Raman spectrometer, little handheld device that we got from the States, uh, but the one that we published within scientific reports last year is a so-called SORS device, S-O-R-S, which is spatially offset Raman scattering. And that's quite clever because it fires a laser, first of all, through the surface of the container that you put it against. Then the laser moves just by a few millimetres and it fires a laser again. And then there's a scale subtraction between these two lasers. So what you're actually doing, it's quite neat, is your... Uh, you're subtracting all of the surface contributions. So the container itself, in other words, the glass, or whatever the container may be made of. So it's making that invisible by, by firing the laser twice at an angle, then doing this scale subtraction. Uh, and that's where we've, where we've had the most success. And it's, I was really fascinated by this story because it would never occur to me that there was fraudulent products being made. And so is this, is your work sort of a new field or has it been around for ages? Um, I think, it, well, uh, our application of it is relatively new because we, we're using handheld spectroscopy. Normally these things are laboratory based, uh, uh, huge machines on optical uh, tables. And we're using machines that, um, uh, uh, handheld machines that are less than a, well, just a pound or so in weight, something like that, you know. Uh, and the main thing is these are highly transportable, so we can take them anywhere. But the other thing that the whiskey industry are very, very interested in is that these are through bottle devices. So we can take measurements uh, uh, without having to pop the cap, as it were. Uh, and food food fraud itself is a, no, it's a, it's a very, very old problem. It was first documented uh, in the scientific field in the 1800s. Uh, so it's very old, but it's really hit the press after the um, the so-called Horsegate incident in the uh, UK and Europe around 2013. Uh, they tested burgers that were found, so-called beef burgers, that some of them were 100% horse, and many of them contained horse. It, it was a huge issue here, so it's uh, it's an international thing, definitely, and it involves all sorts of products. I have to ask, are you, so are you a Scotch whiskey drinker, sir? 
I used to be. Believe it or not, I'm teetotal now. I'm I've been teetotal since about 2010. So, uh, but I used to like my Speyside um, uh, Scotch whiskies. And in fact, I was in Kentucky uh, recently, and I had a wonderful tour of the uh, um, in Bardstown of the 1792 Distillery, and brought some of that back for for friends. It was absolutely marvelous. The people there were just great. Well, is there anything else that we haven't asked about that you think um, that you'd like to mention or it's important for everyone to hear? Um, yeah, just be, you know, just be very alert in when you're buying uh, particularly spirits, because as I said earlier at the start of the uh, conversation, really, that uh, food fraud is a major problem internationally. And this is one of the very few areas of food fraud, which is a definite food safety issue and can do you some serious harm. So I'd be careful uh, going on holiday and things like this, you know, where you're getting cheap triple shots and all this kind of stuff. And you really don't know what's going in there sometimes, you know. So I'd, I'd, just, I'd just be very aware indeed and drink responsibly. Did you ever see that Seinfeld where no. everyone in the city... No, I didn't watch Seinfeld. Oh, my God. But go on, please. Never, well, you don't watch it. <laughs> yeah, but episode where everyone in the city is eating this quote-unquote fat-free yogurt. This yogurt is really something, huh? And it's non-fat! And yet they're all getting like a little chunky. Oh my no. god, I've gained seven pounds! I've gained eight! And so they sneak a sample of the yogurt to be tested by scientists to get the true fat content. Jerry, there's got to be a way we can find that out. There must be some kind of lab that would do that kind of thing. This is exactly what's going on here other than whiskey. I wonder if it's like a user-generated, you know, flagging system. Yeah, and what did they find? They found that it was hella full fat. Oh, God. Yeah. It was a total lie. And then the store actually started, they had to go fat-free, and they it tasted disgusting. Oh, this is terrible fat. Oh, it stinks. Mine too. Huh. Anyway, Seinfeld <laughs> tangent of the day. Jeez. Man, well. <laughs> okay, so whiskey cops in science, love it. What else? What else is in this issue? So scientists are always trying to understand how the brain works and... You know, it's kind of tricky to test stuff on humans because, well, for various ethical reasons, um, you can't just, like, give humans, like, some crazy drugs and... Uh, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you want to understand how other animals respond, um, you could give octopuses uh, MDMA or ecstasy, mm. as a couple of researchers recently did. Wow. And um, as you might expect, the octopuses, well, as you might expect or might not expect. Is it not octopi? Yeah. So these octopuses or octopi, surprisingly, they started behaving kind of like ravers, you know, like they were hugging each other or the, the container that they were in. Oh. And they were basically sort of dancing in the water, which. Wow. I mean, <laughs> Moving rhythmically. Yeah. And the crazy thing is that these octopuses or octopi are so evolutionarily distant from humans that you wouldn't expect their brain to necessarily respond the same way as exactly. humans. Exactly. We have been studying MDMA for a while now, and the reason that we're interested in MDMA is that as a tool, it's actually very powerful because it has these very well-established pro-social effects. That was Dr. Gould Dolan, an assistant professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. We know in humans and in mice that if you give this drug that the animals, even if they're a social species to begin with, like mice and, and humans, that it encourages the animals and the humans to become even more social than normal. 
Why did you want to give MDMA to octopuses in the first place? So um, because octopuses are not social, so the vast majority of the 300 or so known species are asocial and they not only live alone, but if you put them kind of together with other octopuses in a tank, um, they'll be very aggressive to each other and, and possibly kill each other. So they're really asocial. And the idea was that, you know, even though these animals are very asocial, they may have the brain circuitry that you would need to encode social behavior because they do suspend their sort of asocial behaviors when they're mating. So during mating for like two or three minutes, they will become social. And then as soon as the mating is over, they'll um, stop being social and be aggressive towards each other again. And so that suggested the possibility that they have the infrastructure, but normally they turn it off because for whatever reason, being asocial is adaptive for these animals under normal conditions. So how do you actually go about giving an octopus MDMA? Um, so that was another thing that we sort of had to work out because, um, you know, we, when other people have told us that they have given them their anesthetic drugs, um, just by submerging them into, um, seawater that can, contains diluted versions of those anesthetics. So we wanted to see if we could do the same thing with MDMA, but that gave us a little bit of a, uh, problem because we didn't really know how to convert the doses the, of MDMA from humans and mice, which are very similar in their dose range, to diluted in in water. So we, we took some time to sort of figure that out. And we eventually decided that if we diluted it to roughly the same um, dilution that would be in uh what you would give to a human or a mouse, and then let the octopus sit in a beaker full of that uh, dose diluted in artificial seawater for 10 minutes. And then we just take them out of that beaker and put them in a beaker that just has seawater um, without MDMA, and then let them rest for 20 minutes. And then after that, we put them in the tank and measure how much time they spend in each um, chamber for 30 minutes. So how did you actually measure the drug's effects on the octopuses? Did you just like observe them or do you have a more formal way of quantifying the effects of the drug? Yeah. So, I mean, our goal really was to um, figure out a way to be able to quantitatively measure social behaviors because we didn't want to just give them the drug and give a description of what we thought it looked like because, you know, we're scientists and we want to count things and measure things, right? And so we decided to start with a behavioral assay that had been that's been used in mice and rats and prairie voles, so rodents for you know decades. And um, we wanted to know whether or not we could adapt that behavioral assay to octopuses. So that was our sort of first goal. And the way that that test works is that. Uh, for an octopus is that you put an animal inside of a a big aquarium that's divided into three chambers, um, and the three chambers are connected to each other with walls that have holes in them. Um, and then on one side of the chamber, you have um, just a toy object um, underneath a 
inverted flower pot that has holes in it. And on the other side, you have that same flower pot, but instead of a toy, you have another octopus. And we just um, put in the center chamber the animal that we were testing and then just it, over the course of 30 minutes um, measured how much time they spent in the chamber that has the toy versus the chamber that has the other octopus. And as not not too surprisingly, when the other octopus was um, a male, uh, the subject octopus, the one that we were testing, spent more time in with the toy object than with the other octopus because that's sort of what we would expect for an asocial species. And so once we had established that that sort of baseline response, then we wanted to know, well, what happens now? if we give them MDMA. So we gave them the MDMA. In the advances story, um, our writer mentions that you, you observe that the octopuses appear to be, quote unquote, dancing while taking this drug. Um, you know, how how do you know if an octopus is dancing or if their behavior is significantly different? Yeah, I mean, so that is something that I, you know, am happy to mention. But, you know, I should just say that it's an anecdotal observation. We didn't quantify that. It's not part of the results section of the paper. Um, and part of that is because, as you said, you know, how do you quantify dancing in an octopus? And so I, I, I just want to stress that that is my interpretation and, and it's susceptible to sort of anthropomorphization or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm definitely imposing my own um, notion of what dancing might look like in an octopus to it. But that being said, you know, normally before we gave the MDMA, um, as the octopus uh, explored the tank, you know, it moved somewhat in a way that is not a you know, is that we see we see in uh, videos of octopuses, you know, they mostly crawl around on the bottom of the tank because um, they are benthic animals. So they definitely, um, you know, mostly get around by walking on the bottom of the tank. And sometimes they'll do like this jet propulsion swimming to get away very, very quickly. But that's not their normal way of you know, just exploring a new area. And so on MDMA, what we saw is, is that the animals kind of left the bottom and spent a lot of time floating with all eight arms extended out completely. And they made sort of like a tent and they were just floating, <laughs> you know, and it sort of looked um, like water ballet a little bit, you know, it was, it was all of their arms extended out, which is not something they normally do. Normally, most of them are sort of curled in underneath their mantle and just, you know, one or two of them are moved out at any one time. And so this totally stretched out thing was, was new. Um, and then the other thing is that they had to, what seemed to me a little bit like play behavior. So they, um, you know, as, as I said, the chambers were divided into three zones um, with these plastic barriers that hold, had holes in them at the bottom. And so, you know, a couple of the octopuses we noticed did this thing where they would swim through the hole at the bottom and then go up to the top and then do a sort of backflip over 
the barrier, like jump out of the water over the barrier to the other side and then do it again. And they just like seem to be like on some kind of, you know, water slide or something. They just were doing it over and over and over again. And it didn't look like a stereotyped behavior, you know, like sometimes in different mutant mice that we, we use to genetically engineer mice that have, you know, certain diseases, they'll show st- stereotyped black backflip behaviors. This wasn't like that at all. It was, it was like they meant to do it because it was fun. Um, and so, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that we saw. Yeah, they definitely looked like they were enjoying it. Um, but, you know, again, I'm, that's not a quantitative observation. That's just me. So octopuses, I know, are pretty intelligent, sophisticated animals. And I'm just curious whether you thought about the ethics of, you know, administering a psychoactive drug to these really smart animals. We have thought about this a lot. And the fact is, is that currently in the United States, the research guidelines for how to um, treat the animals and how to, um, you know, conduct experiments in these animals um, basically treat octopuses just like a fly or a worm. So um, not really very much regulation. But in Europe, um, sort of in recognition of the sort of sophistication of their repertoire of behaviors, um, the guidelines are very similar to the guidelines you would use to do studies in mice or, you know, cats or dogs, right? So, you know, when we were doing the the dose tests, you know, we started out high and we could tell at the very high doses that they were uncomfortable, but they never kind of elevated that discomfort to the level of inducing them to um, ink, which is a behavior that octopuses do when they're really um, very stressed. Um, And so, you know, we kind of had a good measure of how stressed out were the animals by even the very highest doses. And then we, you know, tried to um, make monitor them throughout the whole experiment. And we knew that they were okay because after the experiments were over, um, we actually sent them back to Woods Hole, which is um, so that they could be used for breeding. And we were, were told that they um, bred successfully and were perfectly happy when they returned. Yeah, well, I'm sure they were having a really good time. (laughs) Um, On a more serious note, do these findings have a larger significance in terms of our understanding of how the brain works? Yeah, so I guess, you know, these experiments are really interesting to us um, from a basic science point of view, because, you know, who doesn't, who isn't interested in knowing where we came from and how we became who we are, right? So on that level, on that fundamental level, it's really interesting to us. But, you know, it's also interesting because um, you may or may not have heard, but there is a renaissance um, right now in interest in the psychedelic drugs um, because they have shown such incredible therapeutic potential. So both MDMA and LSD or psilocybin um are, you know, in clinical trials in humans right now for treating diseases like PTSD and um, addiction and um, depression, right? So those are the three major things that these drugs are being explored for. And, you know, despite knowing a few things about how they work, there's really a lot about how these drugs work that we don't understand. And so, 
you know, we think that these experiments are a important part of working out that puzzle of exactly how are these things working because, you know, they kind of tell us what things are necessary um, and sufficient and what things aren't. Thanks for listening to this new Scientific American podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Meanwhile, get your science news fix at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, and follow us on Twitter where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter handle is at Siam. For Scientific American, I'm Andrea Garleski. And I'm Tanya Lewis. Thank you.